Dad moved to the hills when I could barely walk or talk. He cleared a stand of cedar, built a home of native rock. Now my daddy is a lawyer, but the daddy I recall wore boondock boots and a khaki shirt and a sweat-stained farm straw. And his dreams are in the hills And the limestone rim rock cedar breaks Home of the deer and the whippoorwill Seep spring down on the canyons Thick with the open hill Daddy's dreams are in the hills Daddy's dreams are in the hills We were talking about the time when Jack Stapleford and I were on the uh, were on the uh, Eanes School Board, and we uh, had to condemn some land down on the BK Road, uh, right close to Campcraft, and to, in order to get out to the BK Road from the facilities that we then had, and that uh, we had offered the owner of it uh, five hundred dollars, and uh, we thought that was all it was worth. But it so happened that uh, once we started the proceedings of condemnation we had a jury of you that came in and gave this girl that lived in Cameron at that time gave her fifteen hundred dollars and there we were caught we had to pay her fifteen hundred dollars and we didn't have but five hundred and so uh, Jack and I had to go down to the Austin National Bank put up our personal note and pay this girl the fifteen hundred dollars that is a thousand dollars more than what we had anticipated and in order to recoup our losses we either had to, to, to put up some get some increase the taxes or start to having bingo games so we had uh, uh, double the number of bingo games we've been having up to that time and i think we got the thousand dollars back in about a year's time on playing bingo but we got that land that came out to the bk road and and that's where the school is now built of course when the uh, purchases of the various lots of of the barton springs estates came out and started to build in their homes and such as that on the BK Road. That was the biggest impetus we had in the development of this area. Now, Bailey Beard uh, was an old uh, telephone man, and he brought a telephone line out. And then he opened up a little store. That was the only commercial endeavor, I believe, that took place out of that bunch at that time. But he opened up a, a little store there at the, where the corner now of Westlake Drive and BK Road is over on the north northwest uh, uh, uh corner uh, intersection there. Uh, I will say some more kind things about Bailey Beard and his family when I uh, talk about the history of the people of Westlake Hills. Then on the south side of the BK Road, on the east end of the Grinot Ranch, we run into what some land then that belonged to Ralph Gaith. It was called the Waltz Place, and I think it was bought way back in the 80s by the Mr. Waltz that owned the Davenport Place also, and the Waltz family from Round Rock. But I don't know about that. At the time that I came out here, is, is the best I remember, it belonged to Ralph Gaith. And his son, Joe Gaith, later uh, bought, uh, got hold of it, and I think he still lives there. And that's where all that development in there at Walsh Tarleton, at the intersection of Walsh Tarleton, is located on that land. Then on the east side of, uh, of the, uh, and on the north side of the BK Road, on the east side of the Grinnell Ranch, there was a strip of land in there when I first came out here. The short boys lived on a, a little one-acre tract right down on the road, the BK Road, and back up on the hillside there, 
where Jack Stableford lived later on, it was owned by Dr. Ship in the the, the Coos Covert, and uh, and one of the Leonard boys, Booty Leonard. And I was not familiar too much with them. And on that on that hill, it's I'm given to remind that it was an old Negro man that lived there, and uh, his wife uh, was the uh, one who brought. Uh, acted as doctor to bring most of the short children in the, the world and most of the other white kids in this area at that in the early days. Then east of the of the area I've just talked about, on both sides of the Big Cave Road was uh, the Delaney uh, land. It belonged to Charlie Delaney at the time I came out here. I didn't know his father, but his father uh, had bought it years before, and it ran all the way from uh, where the Walsh-Starlton Road is now and where the entrance into Rolling Wood uh, begins all the way down to Zelka Park. And uh, that was quite a little ways. And, of course, the roads have changed a little bit. They used to go down, and, and turn, uh, when they got down to the Delaney home, the road would go down the creek there and, and go into Zelka Park. Charlie Delaney, of course, had two sons, one of them Jerry, now district judge here. But as kids, they were raised on that place. And their daddy, Charlie, would... I know he had an old automobile that looked like an old Model, Model A Ford uh, pickup, and he had uh, made a little... I mean, a, a roadster, and he'd put a, a little uh, opening in the back, and he used to haul wood and stuff. And each morning, he would take his axe and go out into his pasture, which included the land now they owned by the, the Barton Springs uh, Mall, and uh, work over there. There wasn't any development on that land south of the of the Bee Cave Road until in recent years. I don't know that Charlie was even alive when that happened, but um, he his land owned where Rolling Wood is now, and and where Bluffington is, and and uh, and the Ewing edition. I'm not cognizant of the true facts about how uh, the Hatley boys, A.B. Uh, uh, Hatley and uh, George Hatley, and Mr. Ewing got a hold of the Bluffington and, and uh, Rolling Wood and, and the uh, Ewing land back over there that fronted on the, on the lake. But Mr. Delaney did own that, and they got a hold of it somehow or another. And uh, they, uh, they, they divided it up to where Ewing got the west part of it, and uh, A.B. Hatley got the Bluffington area, and George Hatley got the Rollingwood area in some sort of a division. I think George Hatley was a schoolteacher at the time. But anyway, he said about, and all of them said about subdividing and tried to get some money out of it because they were entrepreneurs and promoters. And I do remember one incident that um, A.B. Hatley, somehow or another, H.B. Uh, uh, Hatley, the, the Bluffington area, Miss um, Dolly Bryant, one of my clients, uh, had a third interest in it. And uh, whenever she got a hold of anything, she never did turn it loose. But anyway, they had all these lots along there. I, I don't know how many of them, but uh, uh, Dolly fell out with, with Hatley and his development of it, and she wanted to have a partition and get her part of the, the lots separate. And so I was representing her, and we tried to figure, she didn't know what the value of the lots were, and I didn't know what they were worth. And Hatley is the only one that knew. But we figured out that Dolly had about $30,000 worth of lots coming at the time that we had this subdivision. Of course, the values changed considerably later. But anyway, uh, we, we conceived the idea. I know that uh, the Mr. Kingsbury, E.G. Kingsbury, was a friend of both of them, and I was the lawyer for Dolly, and I think Stanley Hornby was the lawyer for Hadley. And so we met in E.B. Kingsbury's office one day, and we decided what we would do. And since Hadley knew what the value of the lots were, he would put a piece of paper with the number of the lot and what the value was uh, in a hat on all of the lots. And then Dolly was to start drawing the, the pieces of paper out of the hat 
and uh, until she got $30,000 in value as stated, stated on these little pieces of paper. And I couldn't see any way that Hackney could beat her on that end of a deal, and no one else could. And there wasn't any way. But anyway, we, uh, I think Kingsbury, uh, or no, the, Dolly wouldn't let anybody stick her hand in that ad but her. So she got in and she started pulling these these pieces of paper out, and it gave the number of the lot and, and how much uh, that come off of her $30,000. So when she pulled enough uh, lots out that got her the thirty dollars or $32,000, then uh, the deal was over. And, and then they would have a, to have a deed drawn, and, and Dolly was to get title to these, these lots that she had drawn out that were worth $30,000. Well, we went through this procedure, and uh, Dolly's eyes got bigger and bigger the further along she started drawing. And when we got through, she said, no. She said, I'm just not going to do this. She said, A.B. would not agree to this if it was honest. She said, he's trying to cheat me somehow or another. Well, of course, a woman could get away with saying things like that. But we fi- I finally convinced her that there was no way for him to cheat her. And so she got a deed to those lots. And, of course, she, she didn't sell any of them for years. And I understand that uh, she sold one to, to Mar- where the Marsh home is now. It was one of her lots. And uh, she got somewhere around one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000 for, for that lot. And the whole bunch that she got, uh, she got for 30000 So she didn't do too badly on that matter. And what George Hatley did with the Rollingwood lots, I, I don't know. And I never was very, very close to George. But I was a friend of A.B. and I liked him very well. I might intercede here that Dolly Bryant was both a friend of mine and, and Joris, my present wife, and uh, she introduced us together. And that's the first time I ever met Joris. Dolly introduced me to her, and for that I will be forever grateful. Now I will go back and pick up the history of the lands that I bought in the uh, middle and late 30s that did not front on the B Cave Road, but fronted, uh, uh, they were north of the Marshall land that fronted on the BK Road and run from that point on down to Bee Creek uh, on the north and then the Roy Ranch on the west and ran then on down uh, to, to the dam on the east. This included the major part of the residential area of the present Westlake Hills and all of Wild Basin National Park. In about 1931 to 32, I had hired Tom Short to stay on my uh, McNamara track up where the where my club was and those little houses I had was and Tom lived in one of those little houses and cut cedar and worked on my fences and things like that for me and he got to talking to me about this land that lie north of that back in on the uh, Big Creek bottom and back in the peninsula area and and uh, that run down all the way to to where the, the river it'd be in state land that nobody of course I knew there were no houses on it and no fences of any repair they were all the old fences were laying down and, and of course being a lawyer i knew that that was not state land it had been granted to somebody so i started abstracting that in my spare time which i had a lot of at that time is during the depression and about the only cases i got were bankruptcy cases at that time or divorces and so uh, i found out that who the landowners were this land in the chamber survey and i will take that up first and the, the east end of the chamber survey uh, there was 500 acres that uh, began roughly up there where the Redbud, where the Methodist Church is now on Redbud Trail, and uh, run east uh, to where Westlake Drive is now, it, a, a line where the telephone line and the, and the light line runs through it, the high line. Then uh, uh, I found out that that had, had uh, by the time I appeared on the scene, it had become uh, the p- property of a Mrs. McIntyre.
in San Marcos. She was a, a grandniece of George W. Brackenridge of San Antonio. The Brackenridge Park was named after, and he was a rich man, of course, back in the, in the turn of the century. But uh, he, he had no children, and he had, by, I guess, loaned money to somebody, the McCullers or somebody, and he had taken it anyway he, they had title to it, and in his will he left that to his niece, Mrs. L.B. Matthews, who was the mother of Ms. McIntyre. I happen to know Ms. McIntyre because uh, when I went to school in San Marcos from 21 to 24, I met her sons, and so I corresponded with uh, with her, and she told me to, to get in touch with the San Antonio Loan and Trust Company, that they were the executors of her mother's estate, and it, uh, any deals made with, with that reference to that land would have to be made through them. Well, uh, she didn't know where it was, and she didn't know very much about it. And so she wanted to sell it to me for $2 an acre. And, of course, I was willing to do that as long as she didn't want any cash. That would have been uh, the $1,000 for the 500 acres. And so I negotiated with her, and so we set up a time in, in the early part of 1936. We were going down to talk to... The, the man that's running the bank at the San Antonio Loan and Trust Company. And it so happened at that time they were, uh, horse racing was uh, in favor in Texas, and the Alamo Downs were, was operating. And uh, so uh, you, I'll get to that in a minute. But I went in my car down and picked up Mrs. Uh, McIntyre, and we went to San Antonio one day, one morning, to meet this uh, man that was going to put a price to me on, on, on the 500 acres and try to make a sale. And so... Uh, on the way down there, Mrs. McIntyre uh, let me understand that she, she liked this horse wrecking business, and that's a way to get rich. So we got down there, and, and uh, uh, I told them that I, I could give the $2 an acre for the land. And the bank, banker, I forget his name right now, I have some letters here from him, though, in, in response to in, in my correspondence. And uh, I think it was Earp, something like that. But he had little pinched eyes, and he was a true banker. And uh, he said, uh, no, we, we're not going to let you sell that land for any $2 an acre. It's bound to be worth more than that. Of course, he was trading with me, you know, not knowing that I was broke to start with. And uh, so she said, yeah, but now last year I got a sucker down here, and you let him get away. He would have paid me $2 an acre. And she said, if you let me have that money and Mr. Shelton can let me have uh, part of it today, I can go out to the Alamo Downs and run it down to 10000 before the day is over. Well, this banker took a damn view of that statement. He said, yeah, uh, said Mrs. McIntyre, said, that's the very reason that we are executors of your mother's estate instead of you. Well, anyway, I dickered with them, and finally we come up the, with the situation that I was going to pay them $2,000 of this 500 acres. That was $4 an acre. And I had worked around then, uh, and, and it was going to borrow $500 to put down on it from... Uh, Mr. Blum, Tom Blum, that lived over in Travis Heights, and was one of my clients, and and he'd been up there and looked around. He thought he could loan five hundred dollars, and of course that would be a, uh, it wouldn't have a lien on it because the uh, Mrs. McIntyre would have a lien for the for the balance of it. But anyway, I made that deal, and somehow or another, I got it paid for before the year was up, and some more money was due on it. Well, Pat Molin decided to buy uh, uh, the ten acre block up where Doctor Holtz's home was, and he gave me five hundred dollars for that. So I, I, I'd sell a little bit along and, and, and make, make my payments because the land was not worth anything and producing nothing. Of course, that 500 acres is the land where Redbud Trail runs through the middle of it, Caravan Circle's on it, and Yopon Valley's on it, and it is the, the majority of the residential area of West Lake Hills lies on that 500 acres. And just as a sequel to it, 
about three or four years ago, uh, when the nearest uh, tax assessing authority came in, they were platting all the land up here, and they found out that I had an acre and a quarter of that original 500 acres down on what you call Ledgeway that I had forgotten. It was, uh, I thought I'd sold everything, and I told them I thought I'd sold everything I had in there and subdivided it all in the, in the Stone Edge estates and Old Stone Edge and places like that. All of that had been subdivided. And they said, no, the, the records show that you own an acre and a quarter. So I uh, worked it out with the abstractor, and the Gracie title said, yes, it, the title was in me. And so we had it surveyed, and uh, I sold that two years ago, that one acre and a quarter for $60,000 cash, which uh, the land originally I had paid $6 for. So things do change uh, in time and, and conditions. Then also in uh, 35 or 36, I... I found out that there was 600 acres of land that lie west of that, where the uh, f- uh, f- where the wholesale is now, all the way back up to the Roy Ranch, and uh, then down in on Big Creek there, uh, and it belonged to um, um, the Leewright family. The Roy girls told me that that they didn't own it, but uh, that they had owned it at one time, and or uh, their daddy dad and Mr. Leewright had taken it away from him on a on a, a loan of some kind. Anyway, I traced around and found out that Miss Estelle Wright, an old maid who lived out where the university uh, uh, high school is now, is on Red River Street out there. She had a, an apartment upstairs uh, over uh, an apartment house there. And uh, she was uh, probably 60 or, or more years old, and she had a sister that lived in Tyler, and she had a brother who was a lawyer, Mr. J.B. Wright, a lawyer in, in Corpus Christi. But she was kind of handling... The, the, the this business up here in Austin, and it uh, I learned that her father had been a, uh, a note shaver, uh, a, a loan loan man uh, years before that, and he had loaned the Roy some money, and he had to take this land away from him. not the the girls, but the uh, Rob and 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 Cal Roy, and so I made myself uh, uh, present at her home one day, and I walked up the steps, and she was dressed in white lace and just a beautiful fine lady. And she was reading the Wall Street Journal. I never will get over that because I think that's the first time I ever saw anybody in Austin with their hands on a Wall Street Journal. But I told her what my purpose was, that I was interested in buying that land she had out there and, uh, and, and, and talking with her about it. Well, she said, now, Mr. Shelton, uh, I don't know. And she called me Mr. And there I was about 30 years old, and, and she was a very sedate, fine lady and rich. And so... Uh, I, I, I told her generally where it was, and she said, Now, I don't know where the land is at all. I just know that we have title to it uh, through the foreclosure. And the Roy girls know more than I do about where the land is. They live out there. And she said, I wouldn't attempt to sell anything that they had any claim to at all. Now, she said, If you'll go out there and satisfy yourself as to where the lines are, and if the Roy girls are not making any claim to it, then I will sell you what we have out there. And uh, it managed to be 600 acres. There was... 423 acres in the Chambers Survey, the west end of the Chambers Survey, and and that is mainly where the Wild Basin National Park is now. It went down on Bee Creek, and then they had 177 acres over where the West Lake Highlands is now that, that was in the, what they call the William uh, McCutcheon Labor, 177 acres. So 600 acres was what her total was. And so anyway, we worked out a deal whereby she let me set my own terms. I was to pay her maybe $500 uh, uh, down. It would be about $2,700 in money. I knew it was around 2500 and I knew that by the next year I was going to be rich. Somebody's going to 
uh, be a bigger fool than I was and pay me some money for some of that land that I was uh, choking myself to death with out there. And so I said uh, the first payment was going to be, all of it was going to be paid in one year. Well, uh, I got a deed to that uh, from Miss Leroy. She got her sister and, her, and Tyler and her brother and, and Corpus Christi to, to send the deeds up. And I have some of the original papers here. Now I have some of the letters and the original contracts anyway. And so... Um, uh, when the year was about up in 37, I didn't have any money. It was in, in the fall of 37, so I, I at least was honest enough to, to know I wasn't going to have the money when it come due. So about a, a month before the note come due, I presented myself to Miss, Miss Lee right? I called her and told her I'd like to come out and talk to her. And So when I got out there, she still had the, most, the latest uh, uh, Wall Street Journal sitting on the table there, and she was dressed in immaculately. And uh, she invited me in. She's old enough to be my grandmother. And <laughs> she said, uh, uh, I said, Miss Leroyd, I, I'm not going to be able to pay you that note next month. And she said, Mr. Shelton, I knew you were not going to be able to when you made the terms. But you made your own terms. Now, she said, um, I'm not going to uh, foreclose on you, and I'm not going to take the land away from you. Now, how can you pay that? And I gave her some other cock and bull story. And and uh, Henry Wentland by that time had become my friend, and he was loaning me money, and Mr. Walter Stahaley was, and the Bone Boys. They were backing me up. They didn't have any better sense than to think that my dream was going to come true out there. But anyway, she, she was very nice to me, and she let me off the hook there. And somehow or another, I paid her, and I think like for these people that I was telling you about, but I never will forget how nice she let me off the hook. She said, Mr. Shelton, I knew you were not going to be able to pay me when you made those terms. So in speculating in real estate, you do run into a few fine souls along the way. Then about the same time in 1936, uh, I found out that uh, Mr. Gracie, who owned uh, was the founder of the Gracie Title Company. It wasn't uh, Dave uh, Gracie, and it wasn't David, and it wasn't uh, uh, John. Uh, they, uh, David was in the abstract company, but his daddy owned it. But his daddy had taken a note from some old boy back about 1914, and uh, he had to foreclose on it, and he had 140, 139 acres of land down on Bee Creek uh, uh, in the ALD bottom survey that uh, uh, looked like a crippled duck. The map of it did, and, and Mr. Gracie had never been out there, but he had loaned some fellow some money on it, and he had to take it back. So he took it in the name of his two sons, and so he called me up. He knew that I was uh, being in the abstract business. Of course, he was familiar with everything that's going on in the area, and at that time there wasn't a lot of trading going on because of the Depression. So Mr. Gracie called me in one day, and he told me that he owned this piece of land down there. And, of course, I knew uh, that he owned it. I'd already abstracted it and, and gone and found out who had the title, and I knew where the lines were. And Tom Short had showed me some old fence lines down there, and, and I knew a whole lot more about the land than he did. But he just made a remark to me then. He said, uh, you're the only one that, that knows anything about that land out there in its present condition. And he said, I have people that come in here and ask me about the title to it. And I said, and he's been telling them that he would not guarantee the title or say that they had good title to any of this land unless uh, I, they could get a statement from me that I was not claiming it because he knew that I was in possession of everything that no one else was in possession of out there at that time. Anyway, I bought uh, his... A uh, hundred and some odd acres there, 139 or 40, for four and a half an acre. I had to pay to him the same amount that, that uh, I paid the Lee rides. 
And so I gave him $500 down. I don't know where I got that, but then I owed him the, the balance of it at the, at the end of the year. And so uh, it, I was in the same shape at the end of that year that, that when it come due that I was with Miss Leroy. And in the meantime, like I say, I had Henry wanting helping me, and so I, uh, I, I went to Henry for, for help. I said, Henry, will you pay this note off? It would be about, I think it, I owed him about $500, $500 at the time. And I said, if you'll do that, I'll give you a deed to seven acres down on the east end of this land, this Gracie land. I'll give you that, and you, know, you can look into town from it. Now, I don't have any roads down there now, but some of these days I'll have a road down there, and you can, you can have that seven acres of land. So Henry uh, took the land over, and uh, now, now I, I didn't, uh, he, he took the note too. I still had to pay him the note within a year, but as a bonus for giving me the loan, and he didn't ask for it. I offered that. Uh, because the land wasn't worth anything, and at that time I didn't have uh, Terrace Mountain Drive started yet, and that was on Terrace Mountain Drive. But anyway, we got uh, Mr. Gracie out of the way, and uh, incidentally to that, uh, later on, it might have been 20 years later, and maybe 30 years later, the uh, Wentland family, for that seven acres they got as a bonus for loaning me $500, they sold it for $75,000. Now, another incident with reference to the Gracie land, I told you that that it was in the name of John and David, who was Mr. D.B. Gracie's ch children. And John was the vice president of the Capital National Bank at that time. And so uh, uh, in about a year after I had uh, uh, bought that land, I got Redbud Trail built over to where it, it connected up with the Gracie land and it, it made the land available. And uh, I sold somebody. It might have been Kent Kennan. It might have been Bill Coleman. But somebody, I sold two acres of land in there where Bill Wynn lives now. And I took a note for $2,000 on it. I forget how much it got for it. And I went in to the Capital National Bank, and John Gracie loaned me $1,500 on a security, and I gave him security two acres of the land that I'd bought from his daddy less than three years before for $4 and a half an acre. And then, incidental to that, uh, John also, when I got down to... Uh, the roads went on down to where you could get to this seven acres that I had given the Wentland people, uh, Henry Wentland, for making the loan. Um, he and his wife were out there one day, and they went up on this piece of land where you look into town, and it wasn't but about a half a mile from the lake. And he told me that back when he was courting his wife, that they had taken a canoe or boat and come across the river, and they'd uh, parked there their boat there and then walked back up in the woods and they had done their spooning on this particular spot that I had given the wetlands and he wanted to know what his wife wanted to know at least what I would take for that as a matter of memory for them and I told John that, that I'd want four or five hundred dollars an acre for it and he liked to have a fit he, he just said it wasn't worth the memory wasn't worth that much but that was something that they had found their old spooning grounds and I've run into that with John Harrison too He'd spooned on some of my land and wanted to buy it later when he, uh, when he got rich. That spot was on Wildcat Hollow and where Terrace Mountain Drive comes in now. And as, incidentally, we uh, built a house there on Terrace Mountain Drive. And my son, Jeffrey Dochin, was out uh, burning brush there with me one day on that spot. It's right there at Wildcat Hollow. He found an old quarter that was dated about 1865. And it would have been about the time that Ben Thompson was hiding from the Yankee soldiers 
over on uh, where the springs are on Little Little Bee Creek, and I know for sure that in my own mind that Ben Thompson was when he was out there hiding from the Yankee soldiers for having done some thing, bad things in Austin when he wasn't city marshal, and uh, that he probably used his pistol to kill kill deer, and that he had and uh, and getting in and out of his pockets he'd uh, he or some of his friends dropped that old quarter it was minted in 1865 right in the middle of, of the wilderness daddy's dreams are in the hills daddy's dreams are in the hills